My name is Andrew Kroglun. I'm a freelance writer and an activist, uh, having worked all my life for various Norwegian NGOs, and amongst those, the Norwegian Council for Africa, back in the days when we were fighting apartheid, and with good, a good success rate, I'd say. Um, today's theme is climate, migration, urbanization, which is, of course, a theme which is growing on the world scene. We have migrated since we learned to walk as a species, and we will continue to do so, of course. That is in the human gene to move and to resettle and resettle again. Today we are focusing on Africa, and Africa is an interesting continent, not only because it's our mother continent from a sort of evolutionary perspective, but also because that is the fastest changing continent, and it's going to be so. Approximately a billion people down there today, there will probably be around four billion in, let's say, at the turn of the century. That means a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities, both for Africa and for the world. But what is going to happen when more people are born, more people uh, move into the cities, and you have climate change on top of that, together with autocratic regimes, social unrest, and so on and so forth? We have a very uh, knowledgeable panel with us this morning to shed light on some of these issues. We have Henrik Udall, who is the director of the well-renowned Peace Research Institute of Oslo. We have Patience Mususa, who is a senior researcher at the Nordic Africa Institute in Uppsala in Sweden. And we have Tor Arve Benjaminsen, who is a researcher out at Nordagrik, the University of Life Sciences at Aarhus, and who has also been in this debate for years. So the idea is that we have a short introduction from these three people. We have a, an informed little chat here on stage, and then we open for reflections or questions from the audience, and we finish uh, at nine o'clock sharp. So Henrik, what's your perspective on some of these issues? <coughs> thank you very much, uh, Andrew. Is on. Um, uh, first and foremost, thank you to, to Fellesgode for uh, inviting me and for organizing this event. I think the issue of urbanization and the social consequences of urbanization is one of the uh, most important and, and probably the most underappreciated uh, issue uh, that pertain to, to uh, uh, development challenges uh, today. Um, there, when it comes to the relationships between climate change and migration, urbanization in this uh, case, and, and issues of war and peace, there is no uh, lack of doomsday scenarios. And one of the most prominent ones was, uh, was Sir Robert Kaplan's The Coming Anarchy, which was published, uh, published in uh, The Atlantic back in 1994, where he talks about uh, his drive from uh, the airport to downtown Conakry in, uh, in Guinea. Uh, traveling through never-ending shanty towns, uh, seeing young men everywhere, uh, hordes of them that were uh, like loose molecules in a very unstable social fluid, uh, is what his, uh, his exact words uh, were in this, uh, this article. So how do these perceptions uh, relate to reality? Because Robert Catlin is, is not uh, the only one uh, sort of presenting uh, the uh, the challenge in this way. And I'll be focusing my opening statements on three major points. First, Sub-Saharan Africa will experience massive urban growth in the coming decades, and that is largely a positive thing. 
but rural to urban migration has to be managed sustainably. Uh, if you look at the uh, World uh, Urbanization Prospects, the UN Population Division's data on uh, urban uh, expected urban growth, uh, the current overall in this 2015 numbers uh, level of urban population in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is 38 uh, across uh, the Sub-Saharan African uh, countries. In East Africa, uh, about a quarter, 25%, that's the least urbanized region in Sub-Saharan Africa. And as I said, whether, I, well, I would argue that, that this is largely a positive thing, that this is about to change. Whether or not we see this as uh, positive, it is happening. And it's happening regardless of climate change. Um, the expectation is that on, in only the, uh, the uh, 15 years from uh, now, sorry, the 20 years from 2015 to 2035, the urban population in Sub-Saharan Africa will increase from 38% to 48%. There will be an additional 372 million urban Africans in this period, uh, which uh, then is, is equivalent to uh, more than 100% increase. Roughly two-thirds of the po total population increase on the continent will be urban, and a significant proportion of, uh, of this uh, population will live in what is defined as uh, slum uh, areas. Sub-Saharan Africa is now, uh, in, in when looking at ahead on the expected growth in major cities across the continent, um, uh, Sub-Saharan African cities occupy the top 32 places on the list of the fastest growing cities in the world, the top 32 uh, uh, cities. 21 of these cities are expected to double in the next 15 years, and two-thirds of these cities are not the capitals of their countries. So we will see major urban change. Second, and this is an important point and, and relates to, to these uh, uh, doomsday scenarios, is that we should not automatically fear migration and urbanization and be cautious about securitizing the issues of climate change and migration. And as I said, urbanization is happening regardless of climate change. Uh, people in Sub-Saharan Africa, just as, uh, as we see uh, elsewhere in the world, are moving to urban centers because they are rational. Urban residents have more education, they have better health care, they have higher standards of living than people in the countryside. Even when they live in slum areas, they're average uh, um, education, health standards, and, um, and uh, living standards are typically higher than the average uh, uh, on the, in the countryside. Uh, in a recent study that we did on uh, armed conflict and maternal health in sub-Saharan Africa uh, across 32 different countries, we found that across all cities, 80% of women gave birth in hospitals or clinics, while in rural areas, this comparable number was 40%. While urbanization is happening regardless of climate change, it is likely that climate change will contribute to accelerate this, pro uh, this process, but in various ways and to in, 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 in terms of temporally uh, at, at some different uh, pace. You will have uh, extreme weather events which will have be rapid in terms of onset and lead to immediate displacement of people. But in many cases, uh, those who are displaced will be able to go back. Then you have uh, uh, the possibility that you'll have increasingly dry areas 
uh, droughts, uh, potentially gradual degradation. At the same time, this these will be gradual processes to some extent reversible processes. Uh, and uh, over time, uh, some will be able to return, others uh, will have to resettle. But this is, of course, a part of a larger uh, development where uh, also sort of other prospects uh, uh, for, uh, for economic outcomes will play into the decisions of individuals whether to uh, resettle permanently uh, or return. And then you will, of course, have uh, the, the most ultimate uh, uh, factor uh, displacing people, sea level rise which also in Africa will mean that, that if we'll see a significant sea level rise, that will, uh, that will lead to, uh, to displacement uh, that is, is um, uh, w w which will not uh, obviously allow for, uh, for return. At the same time, that is also a process that will happen gradually, which will facilitate uh, a, a gradual resettlement uh, of population. So, um, so these, are, these are complex situations. There are a number of factors playing into this and climate change is only one factor leading to, uh, to migration movements. Rather than trying to prevent urbanization, which many countries do, with also with the support of international donors, we should try to manage and facilitate it. Both because promoting sustainable development, uh, so sorry, sustainable urbanization improves people's lives, and because cities are the engines for economic, uh, political, and social change in Africa as well as in the rest of the world. My third point is that we don't know for sure whether urban migration, possibly amplified by climate change, will represent a security risk in the region in the future. Research is generally inconclusive when it comes to the relationships between climate change and conflict, and this is also rep uh, reflected in uh, more recent IPCC reports. But at present, we have no strong evidence suggesting that urbanization is generally associated with increased levels of conflict. Actually, on the contrary, if you look across countries and across cities on uh, urbanization rates, there seems to be no positive uh, association or no association between, uh, between um, urbanization and conflict, but rather uh, there seems to be a, uh, the opposite direction of higher levels of urbanization leading to less uh, conflict and less urban social disturbance. Uh, in a recent study, we have looked at, um, trying to separate, looking at, uh, at uh, both urban cores and uh, peri-urban areas, the, the areas surrounding the, the urban cores, and there seems to be a higher likelihood of, uh, of urban uh, disturbance in these outer areas when you have high levels of, uh, of urban growth. But this is probably linked to lower levels of public services and lack of regulatory frameworks in these areas and not primarily to the issue of population movement. So uh, political responses to urbanization and climate change are crucial. Uh, the perhaps strongest links betwe link between uh, climate change and uh, conflict is in the reverse uh, relationship namely that uh, armed conflict is increasing vulnerabilities to climate change, reducing uh, the capacity to adapt to climate change. And uh, that uh, our major challenge, the way I see it, is in the potential failure to facilitate uh, sustainable uh, urbanization with the potential that some of the measures that we're taking could actually be counterproductive. Thank you. I'm sure that for many of you, these were new perspectives. They are very interesting indeed. Um, Patience, you have uh, been studying uh, urban trends in, in a Zambian context. Could you please tell us your perspective? 
Okay, uh, yes, uh, thank you. To follow on from um, uh, the previous points about urbanization dynamics, at the Nordic Africa Institute, uh, together with colleagues from Malmo University, Alborg, and the Malawi University of Science and Technology, we've been looking at um, how communities in what we describe as the urban margins, even though they are the urban majority, uh, are organizing to to address uh, environmental stress, the absence of uh, services like water and energy and all. And looking at these particular uh, uh, processes as potential entry points to, to sort of see how uh, states and cities could help scale up. Uh, given the example of Zambia, where I've been doing uh, my research, particularly in Lusaka and on the Copper Belt, the country had uh, experienced a sort of prolonged austerity policies from about the mid-1980s onwards, where you saw a retreat of uh, public uh, services, uh, such as education and health, where people increasingly had to pay for it, and lots of people lost their jobs amidst the sort of uh, growing privatization and reduction of the, pri uh, of, the, of the public sector, effectively leading many people to engage in economic activities to sustain themselves. This at the same time happening within a context where you have increasing urbanization. So Lusaka, for example, has an urbanization rate of over 4%. Um, uh, per annum, and it's one of the fastest growing cities in, in Southern Africa. And over 70% of the population are living in what they call informal settlements. So the question is, is that when you increasingly have um, difficulty in accessing public services like water, uh, energy, uh, and the like, well, how are people um, addressing this within a context where you have precarious weather patterns, such as uh, droughts, or occasionally you have heavy floods. And one of the case studies that we've been following up is, um, is uh, affiliated to the Slum, Slum Dwellers International, and it's a, it's a federation of, um, of uh, largely women, uh, who've been organizing across the city's informal settlements, and they are interconnected within the country with other groups, but also regionally with groups in Malawi and in South Africa. And what uh, their organization indicates as they sort of organize uh, land for urban agriculture, to help sustain themselves as they do trainings on kitting out their houses with solar panels, as they build composting toilets in, uh, in informal settlements because of the absence of running water to have clean sanitation. It shows effectively that uh, societies, even on the margins, can cooperate to address these major challenges. And I think cooperation is, is uh, and what this particular group shows is that cooperation is, uh, is particularly important, particularly when we are confronted with the prospect that uh, we may have increasing uh, competition for particular resources uh, amidst austerity, but also amidst environmental, environmental stress. And I think linking this to uh, migration, I, I would prefer to connect it to the notion of mobility. And here, uh, migration, i.e. when one looks at how the, these groups of organized women are 
organizing and sharing ideas, effectively their ability to move and share ideas across the region. So to give an example, uh, groups from Malawi uh, came in to help some of the Zambian groups learn how to build composting toilets. Um, the federation groups, Abalalia Basanjo, who have uh, architects and other uh, technical expertise, um, uh, supporting them came into Zambia to help people learn how to build sandbag uh, houses. Uh, and also there's, there's a mobility in, in ideas that also again links back to this notion of cooperation. And without the ability to move, to learn, to see uh, what people are doing across different settings, um, effectively uh, we are confronted with, um, with the difficulty of sort of addressing these sort of broader global challenges. So if we have to see it in sort of broader perspective, um, what we're aiming to do, because the project just does not link Lusaka and Malawi and uh, Mozambique, but also links into broader cities like Detroit and Malmo in uh, Sweden, we're effectively arguing that to sort of understand what's going on at the urban margins in terms of how people are cooperating and innovating to address environmental stresses, either as a result of climate change or as a result of sort of shifting land use um, uh, patterns that if we share ideas across these particular settings, there's a possibility to address these particular challenges, not just in local or regional perspective, but also in global perspective. And a large part of what the, um, uh, this particular uh, Slum Dwellers uh, International Affiliated groups uh, show in this particular case that we've been uh, are following is that uh, issues around uh, climate environmental stress are not uh, just local. They are global in repercussions, largely also because the natural resource basis on which we uh, organize a life, whether it's energy. For example, uh, Zambia relies largely on hydroelectric uh, uh, power, and the country has been experiencing major uh, power cuts as a result of low water dam levels in the, in the Kariba Dam, and effectively catalyzing load shedding for about up to more than 10 hours uh, a day, sometimes up to 17 hours a day. The Kariba Dam is a shared resource between uh, Zimbabwe. But then there are knock-on effects in the sense that with, uh, for larger businesses, it effectively requires the use, they're increasingly turning to the use of generators, effectively meaning fossil fuels. For poorer families, it means charcoal, and the, you know, the cutting down of trees. And effectively, this links into sort of broader systemic uh, challenges in that as we're trying to sort of address climate-related uh, stresses, trees are being cut down as a result of uh, falling um, water levels in the dam as a result of successive droughts. Um, hydroelectric power is unaffordable for many, so people turn to um, uh, unsustainable biomass like charcoal. And when one looks at it in a sort of multi a multiply effect, when you look at it, continental-wise, and when you look at these urbanization dynamics long-term, it effectively indicates that we need to be attentive to uh, local practices and dynamics and, and the natural resource base of upcoming urbanization in order to address these particular challenges, but that these particular challenges cannot be addressed in a vacuum. We need to learn from one another, and that requires effectively the mobility of ideas 
And that, in practice, also means people being able to move to see what other people are doing and learning from one another. Fascinating uh, thoughts um, and very positive, too. Uh, interesting. Tuirarva, you have done a lot of research during the years on, on uh, environmental issues in, in Africa, and we are now looking forward to your take on this. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, so this is a broad debate, of course, and we come to this from different angles. Uh, I haven't worked on migration or urbanization myself, but I worked on uh, conflicts and I worked a bit, as uh, Andrew said, on environmental and climate issues. Um, and my, my angle, my, my take on this is that, um, or my background to this debate is that um, I've done research in Mali for the last 30 years or so, uh, actually 32 years. I visited Mali for the first time in 1987, doing field work for my Hovudfag um, in uh, geography at the University of Oslo. And I went to Mali to study the causes of desertification, and I came back actually questioning the whole process. And that sort of questioning of desertification, that conclusion has been strengthened since, since the late uh, 80s. And actually the Sahel, so the, the, you know, the, the the savanna zone south of the Sahara Desert has be actually been greening for the last 30 years, since the droughts of the 1970s and 80s. And if we look at uh, what uh, the climate scientists say about the, 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 the pot possible impacts of climate change on the Sahel, I think the first, if you ask them, uh, they would say that there is a lot of unpredictability. Uh, we d simply do, do not know. But uh, mo despite that, most climate models actually predict more rainfall in the Sahel. So the greening might continue, but also um, more rainfall um, in a shorter rainy season. So the rainy season might start later and end sooner. So there will be totally increased rainfall. The most likely scenario is totally increased r rainfall. Uh, but also more concentrated rainfall and more un unpredictability. And this will, of course, have um, consequences for people living in the Sahel. Um, we don't know exactly which consequences, but certainly there will be, it will probably be more difficult to become, uh, to, to, um, to be a small-scale farmer, for instance. The pastoralists might have uh, less problems adapting to this. Yeah, so that's, that's one part of my research, looking at the environmental and climatic change in the Sahel. And another part of my research has been uh, focusing on conflicts. And if we look at the causes of conflict, uh, as Henrik said, the, there is a main idea in the media and among policymakers that, that uh, climate, climate change is the main driver of, of conflicts. But a lot of the research, and including my research, uh, has been critical to that conclusion. Um, my, my argument is that um, a main driver of conflicts in the Sahel is uh, different forms of land dispossession or land grabbing, uh, if you like, yeah, by, by elites linked to corrupt practices. Um, and, and for instance, the jihadism we see the growing jihadism we see in the Sahel is linked to a resistance against this, um, these corrupt land-grabbing practices, um, which have I internal causes, but also some external causes. 
Uh, and I, as I said, I haven't done research on migration myself, but uh, I've tried to follow some of the, read some of the literature on, on migration. And I, my impression is that, that migration has some of the same causes as, um, as conflicts in the Sahel. I have a good friend and colleague, uh, Jesse Rebo, who is uh, a professor at the American University in Washington, D.C. And he has, uh, like me, carried out research in the Sahel for about 30 years, but he has foc been focusing on, on the Tambacunda region in, uh, in, in Senegal. And in uh, April 2015, there was a boat that sank in the Mediterranean with more than uh, 700 people on board. I think it w there were, were uh, around 720 people on board, and 700 people died. And many of those people were from the Tambacunda region. So Jesse, he went back to Tambacunda, asked friends and families of these people who died on that boat, why did they leave? And the stories they told were that they left because uh, they felt excluded from markets, because of lack of social services, um, because of uh, low prices on crops, because of lack of political representation and so on, and because, it, uh, because of a general feeling of, of, of powerlessness. And most of these people who left were young men who didn't really see a future in, in Tambacunda, which gives a completely different image of this, this narrative that you see in the media all the time, that people are leaving because of uh, climate change, that there are climate refugees. I think that narrative is deeply apolitical and problematic because it's glossing over the real political causes of, of conflicts and of migration. Yeah, I think I'll stop there. This is really fascinating. Um, the narrative that the three of you are presenting to us this morning is, as far as I can read you, a narrative of uh, hope and possibilities. And you're also sort of underlining that there is no single course to anything in this world. And <laughs> as you conclude, Thuradva, we need to get political again. So political analysis should be at the root of any type of study. And you can't come to the table with preconceived ideas. Um, Henrik, I mean, the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, this is spot on to, to what you are all about, isn't it? Going to the roots, finding out why there is war and conflict. Could you place your institution in the larger international picture here? Are you the odd one out? Because it seems to me that on the continent, in Germany and other countries, climate leads to war and unrest seems to be the story being told, in the media at least. Uh, th that's very true. I think when it comes to the research um, field, there is much more diversity. And I think perhaps the, the, uh, the largest uh, divisions, if you like, are between the different uh, sort of sectors, different segments. Uh, and in the research community, uh, there's quite a few across different countries, whether that is Germany or the US or elsewhere, uh, that, that uh, um, where the research agendas are much more nuanced than what we see in the media. And, and I, the way that I uh, see the whole issue about uh, sort of over climate change and, and conflict, this is primarily driven by political agendas. 
uh, and the wish to, uh, to elevate the issue of climate change to the top of the political agenda, which I personally uh, have much sympathy for because I do think that climate change is the most pressing issue that we're facing. At the same time, if uh, the, the whole of the IPCC process is based on solid scientific evidence, if we are jumping to conclusions about the social consequences of armed co uh, sorry social consequences of climate change, we are running the risk of undermining the whole legitimacy of the IPCC process. And I think those who are, you know, pushing this agenda without any uh, uh, recognition of the fact that there is much greater uncertainty when it comes to some of these social consequences they are de facto uh, contributing to potentially to undermining the IPCC process. So we should at least keep that in mind. I mean, this is not necessarily a competition for, uh, for identifying, uh, you know, the, the, the most, uh, the utmost uh, sort of extreme consequences. I think there are a number of good reasons to be, uh, to be uh, uh, fighting climate change. Uh, and when it comes to the issue of, of armed conflict, uh, it's, it's both a level of uncertainty, which means that we, we will have to be aware of the actual, uh, the, what the real consequences are, uh, as opposed to, to the most sort of apocalyptic uh, perspectives. But from my perspective as a, as a, as a uh, conflict researcher, it's also important to highlight what we consider to be the major drivers of armed conflict. And if we're failing to identify those because we, we, we take sort of a one-sided uh, view of, of some major cause, which may or may not be related or be a significant driver of conflict, we are potentially also failing to, uh, to address some of the other major uh, drivers of armed conflict. But to it, Oliver, uh, what you are saying is, is actually going against, as far as I understand, what is the main narrative, for instance, of the United Nations Environmental Programme, UNEP, which is based in Nairobi, which also used to have a Norwegian boss with Eric Solheim. Um, now, Solheim's and UNEP's narrative has been that Darfur, for instance, in, in the Sudan, is a classic example, an, a, a modern classic example of climate change leading to unrest, civil war, and, uh, and murdering of people. What's your... <coughs> yes, uh, UNEP does not have a very good record on this. <laughs> so UNEP, um, you know, UNEP was established after the Stockholm conference, the first conference on sustainable development in Stockholm in the early 70s. It was uh, established in, uh, the, so the headquarters were built in Nairobi. Uh, I think they started operating in 76 or something. And they immediately picked out desertification as their key focus area. They, they defined desertification as the most important and global environmental problem. And uh, others, you know, scholars have said later that they picked desertification because it didn't have any, it was a, um, an environmental problem that did not have any powerful losers. If you understand what I, I'm saying. You know, the losers from that, from picking desertification as an, as an issue are, you know, powerless small-scale farmers, pastoralists who see sanctions on their use of the land. It's not, you know, major economic powers, international institutions. They could continue as before. So what you are implying is almost a sort of a, a conspiracy against small-scale users of <laughs> scarce no, no, resources. I don't, no, 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 conspiracy. I don't believe in conspiracies. Uh, but you know, there, there are some power dynamics here. You know, they, they, uh, this was an international, um, you know, UN organization 
with a mandate to work on global environmental issues, it needed support from uh, powerful players, basically, the, the main funders and so on. Now, UNEP has actually been struggling with funding since they were established. Uh, so they have basically had only had funding to operate their own office and nothing else. Uh, you know, salaries, uh, salaries and copy machines, but not to do things. So patients. So, that, so that's maybe also uh, yeah. So that they use UNEP has for a long time been suffering from a poor uh, international image, uh, poor um, reputation actually uh, among environmentalists, and uh, yeah. So they have been they haven't been able to play that important role they could have played, um, and and that there is so this this history of desertification is still in the walls of within the walls of UNEP. Interesting. And patients, Mudiske um, of the Nordic Africa Institute, um, in where do you place yourself on, on this narrat narrative line, if you like, on, on climate change uh, and conflict? Are there any sort of study programs within your institute on this? or? I think, uh, so I'm, I'm not a conflict researcher at all, but we do have uh, a number of researchers who have been doing work in the, in the Sahel region. And um, what's come up from some of the discussions that have emerged from there are that, as, as, you, as you mentioned, the, the issues of uh, the absence of the state, uh, inequalities seem to sort of come up so much more, uh, shifting land use as a result of um, a larger scale industries uh, setting up there, which don't get much uh, visibility uh, in, 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 in the news. And so there's an underlying uh, a dynamic there about sort of the broader political economic context that I think needs to be analyzed and looked at attentively to say, well, what is going on in, in these particular uh, conflict zones and, and, and these particular areas? In my own uh, research, looking at Africa's uh, copper belt, um, where you have the DR uh, Congo, the Katanga region, and the Zambian copper belt, is that the dynamics of increasing um, large-scale mining uh, in the area since around sort of 2003-2004 is driving new s settlement patterns in that particular area. And at a local level, it means um, people being forced to move, to pave way, for uh, large-scale mining activity, which is often, oftentimes uh, open cast. Uh, it's uh, occurring in particular uh, ecosystems. For example, you have the Zambezi um, uh, water basin, which is a significant ecosystem there with particular forestry resources, interconnected and particular economies that have been sort of largely, not necessarily connected to the urban economy, but largely rural. And so there's changes and dynamics there as you have uh, increasing cash economy and these sort of um, uh, detailed sort of microeconomic but also sort of broader political economic dynamics uh, have, I think, affecting um, uh, uh, urbanization, settlement patterns, but also um, the kinds of issues that people are concerned about in those particular areas that receive not as much um, uh, credence in the news. And I think we should be, be more attentive to what's happening at a local level and unpack that to challenge some of these broader, um, uh, simplified narratives 
of, of what is driving conflict or what is driving uh, migration and what is causing environmental stress in, in particular uh, ecosystems. And, and the mining industry in Zambia is still basically on, on foreign hands, or do you have sort of national companies also um, extracting the resources? Uh, the state, um, uh, since uh, the, the mining industry was largely private, uh, up sort of comprised two main mining houses up to 1970s when it was uh, nationalized, and then it was reprivatized in the mid 1990s. But the state maintains a small component, I think roughly, um, you know, don't quote me on these numbers, probably about 15 to 17%. So they have a stake, but it's not a majority uh, stake. And, uh, and there's been, uh, since uh, mining was established in the re region around the turn of the, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, 100 years on from now, there's a sort of intensification of new mining into new areas. And the dynamics around that are occurring within a sort of broader global context where there is um, uh, what, what one would cynically describe a sort of uh, hunt for new minerals, effectively, to for for the for uh, for the green economy, and so there's there's uh, we recently had an event at the Nordic Africa Institute, effectively, um, uh, effectively interrogating the narrative. So it's like, well, what what does it mean uh, in a context to sort of we're talking about sustainability, and we're aiming for much more sustainable uh, societies, but then we're mining more. Maybe we should be recycling more and recycling what has already been mined um, a lot more to reduce these sort of land-based uh, forcible relocation. And China is a big actor? It's a significant actor, uh, but you have a lot of other players. And, and, and the Zambian Copper Belt gives a good microcosm of how um, a, a seemingly small country out in the middle of nowhere is effectively interlinked to this sort of broader global Economy, you have Australian mining companies, Canadian registered mining companies, Swiss based uh, uh, companies. So it's effectively uh, global rather than any one player. To Larva, uh, the, on the issue again of environment, there is a large scale uh, project going on in Africa the green wall of trees being built and millions and millions of dollars, of course, being used. And I would have thought that most people would see that as very positive. But I wonder what is your take on that? You know what my take in <laughs> on that is. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> yeah, I, th that's uh, basically a waste of time and money. And, uh, and a lot of money. I can't remember the figures now, but it's uh, many billion US dollars, actually, that are planned. Fortunately, I think they have tr uh, trouble getting funding for that project. But... Uh, so Why is this a bad idea? Isn't it good for the environment that you bind the so soil, you, you capture CO2, CO2 etc., etc.? Um, yeah, if uh, you were able to do that. But, uh, you know, uh, there is a lot of experience with uh, tree planting projects in the Sahel. We're talking about the border to the, to the Sahara here, very dry areas. And the history tells us that 2% of those trees survive. So... Unless you go, you, you hire a lot of people to go and, uh, you know, water those trees by hand. Or you have a sort of an irrigation project. <laughs> but, you know, you're talking about the, the plants are huge. You're talking about a, I 
can't remember how many thousand kilometers wide, and uh, is it 15 kilometers uh, on, uh, you know, on the north, uh, south? I, I can't remember the, the data now, but uh, you know, it's, we're talking about a huge area. You can't water that. So it has to, you plant it, and then you hope uh, the trees will survive, and they won't. But you are uh, so that's one problem. Another problem, and that's maybe even more serious, is that it's going to take away a lot of land from people who actually use the land. You know, it's going to take away l uh, pastures from pastoralists. But, uh, that's maybe the most important, but also in some areas it will uh, also encroach on uh, farmland. So uh, it's, uh, it's a very, very problematic project. But, but of course, this is the type of project that gets international attention because we think it's an easy way out in a way. Instead of uh, reducing consumption in, in Norway, reducing oil production, we plant trees in Africa and think that will help. Good point. Um, Henrik, I mean, if I were to follow your uh, way of thinking, then I would have thought that PRIO as such would have been critical to the um, peace prize which was given in its time to the IPCC and to Al Gore. Any comment? As you see, no causal effect between fighting climate change and peace. So before, a few weeks before the, uh, the prize in 2007 to IPCC and Al Gore, I wrote an op-ed in Aftenposten saying that if the Nobel Committee would give the prize to IPCC and Al Gore, I hope that they would argue differently than saying that there is a connection between uh, climate change and conflict. Uh, they didn't listen to me, uh, so, uh, so oh dear. Uh, I oh took, dear. took notice yeah. of the fact that I had no impact over the, the Nobel Committee. But I, I do. I would like to say that you know there has been discussion this year about about uh, Greta Thunberg. Uh, whom I think you know is doing a fabulous job in, in getting attention to the to the climate change issue, uh, but uh, but uh, there was a lot of surprise when she didn't didn't get the prize. And, and again, from our perspective, uh, if you want to if you want to say that uh, you know uh, the, the the peace prize is for generally for human security, um, so more broadly, and, and that you want to raise you know the issue of of uh, climate change being a major human security uh, uh, challenge. That's perfectly fine, but but uh, linking it very specifically to issues of war and peace is premature in in some ways, and and also in my view uh, potentially counterproductive. So so this this has nothing to do with, with whether or not we believe in human-induced climate change, because I, I think most of, of us agree that that is both happening and it's a major challenge. But it doesn't it, it isn't helpful if we're trying to uh, to make the argument that uh, that there are links here that that are weak at at best and, and potentially, uh, again, you know, counterproductive if we, if we want to take that narrative all the way in. And this also relates, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that, that some of those who are most engaged in this, this discussion has no problem, uh, you know, arguing for the case that migration is causing conflict. That is a very central link in the relationship between climate change and conflict. Uh, and there is just no sort of clear and strong uh, association between migration and conflict whether it's between rural and urban areas or between countries. So we have to be a little bit careful also about what the political implications of the arguments that we're pursuing, especially when they have very little or, or at least weak foundation scientifically. But of course there has been, or there have been clashes, for instance, in South Africa between migrant workers and South Africans. By all means, and, and there are, uh, you know, uh, 
huge political conflicts in in Europe over uh, perceptions of migration, uh, but but whether or not uh, you know climate induced or or the fact that people are moving into other areas is a major driver of conflict, uh, is is something that is uh, is not supportive. Patience, you mentioned in your uh, uh, introduction the the cooperation going on between neighbours Mal uh, um, uh, Malawi and 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 Zambia. Uh, tell us a little more about that because that sounds that sounds like just you know good old NGO work. You bring people together, you learn from shared experiences, and then you go on and and, and better your everyday life. Uh, yes, and sort of linking into the question earlier about uh, the about um, uh, xenophobia. Um, in, in the Southern African region. I think that there actually should be more of that kind of cooperation. As it is, it is organized very much by federation of, um, of, of NGOs or movements, if, if, you, if you call them housing movements. In South Africa, concerned about service delivery. In Zambia, concerned about access to urban land. In Malawi, quite similar. Effectively, sort of taking a step in where the state has sort of stepped out. Um, in some of the studies that have been done, there was the Southern African Migration uh, Project. I think that was led by Jonathan Crush in uh, looking at uh, migration dynamics in uh, Southern Africa. A, a lot of the... Um, a lot of the drivers of sort of xenophobic sentiment in the area were highly complex and, and you know, like, and there's been a number of studies effectively looking at different areas. So it's the retreat of the state um, as a result of sort of prolonged um, uh, austerity policies. It is uh, long running narratives about othering. So effectively when you put it within a context of um, a spatial planning and sort of social engineering that has uh, set out to create a narrative of others as somehow intrinsically different that feeds into these kinds of narratives. Um, the kinds of uh, the, the dynamics around, um, uh, you know, that are largely pushed by uh, sort of state policy as well, uh, such as nationalism in a, in within within a context where the state is trying, you know, the regions, the countries are trying to integrate, but then countries are, you know, pushing a sort of nationalist uh, narrative. All these come to sort of intertwine, and 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 create. Um, uh, uh, you know, sort of spots of com of conflict that I that go beyond uh, a climate uh, a crisis. But um, I, I would highlight that there is huge prospects for cooperation, and I think that's what these particular groups do. And uh, very much a little bit like the Erasmus program that uh, Europe runs, there should be more of those kinds of initiatives, but effectively, but initiatives that also cater to uh, people who live in distressed uh, urban settings, not just for people going to university and college, but effectively for young people. And once there's a lot more of that, I think there would be a, a great more understanding that these particular groups show in addressing common challenges. Okay, anybody here who wants to pose a question to anybody in the um, panel, then time is here, or if you have any ref reflection or comments. If I could just say, I, 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 um, I thank you. That's, uh, I think these are, th these are extremely important uh, perspectives. I think what, uh, I, just, just to clarify, 
uh, migration is not frictionless. I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's quite clear. I mean, there will be conflicts of interest. There will be uh, conflicts over, and, and talk about conflicts of interest in terms of, of, of land use, specifically as, as urban centers are uh, expanding. And I think uh, the, the essence here is to look at adaptability measures and political uh, responses to uh, what is happening and wh what is going to take place. What is completely counterproductive is that if we're ignoring the fact that cities are growing, if we're ignoring the need for providing uh, sort of political frameworks that allow this to happen in a peaceful way, in a way that we can manage these conflicts of interest, that is when we will see this friction uh, arise. Then um, what we are seeing, so, so my own background is in, in quantitative political science. So I'm, I'm looking at not uh, sort of the deep down uh, work that, uh, that the patients and, and Toragve are doing, but trying to look what is similar across cases. And we've looked at, at cities all over the world. And what we're seeing is that if you look at the relationship between urban disturbance, so even lower levels of, uh, of uh, sort of violent uh, uh, conflict and protest, there is just no sort of general association between high population growth on one side and levels of social disturbance on the other side. Whether or not you look at this at on the on the city level or the country level or in a more sort of fine-grained, detailed, um, high resolution using GIS data to, to look at this, there's just no pattern that is uniform. That doesn't mean that you cannot have, you know, specific processes that are sort of, of, uh, of examples of to the contrary. But uh, what we are interested in, in, in some of these studies that we've been doing, are the general patterns. And there, you know, the main conclusion is that we don't see any sort of strong general relationships uh, between these factors. Sort of exchange networks like the C40 where Oslo is, 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 is a part, I think. Do African cities also belong to some of these networks? As far as I know, I think they are, but there's, there's, uh, I know from Sweden that there's a number of these twinning programs that have been ongoing, and I know CEDA runs, um, that's the Swedish Development uh, Corporation Agency, runs um, a number of these exchanges with um, municipal actors, you know, to do visits to sort of see how they're dealing with uh, waste management uh, in particular uh, and energy and also social welfare provision. So there are a number, but I, I would say that they are not as many as they should be, particularly given that, you know, with the sustainable development goals, we are shifting towards a much more sort of global framework uh, for, for, for measuring uh, whether cities are, are, are sort of much more inclusive, um, you know, sort of better managed, that there is not as much, but I think uh, countries like Sweden are, are running these programs. Jolly good. Uh, you, as you might be aware of, Oslo, of course, is, is becoming a very interesting city worldwide, and a lot of major cities come to Oslo in order to learn from how the Oslo City Council budgets, because you have a budget, and then you measure that against a CO2 budget, which is, you know, new. And so several cities are coming to Oslo in order to learn from that. Um, we're going to wrap up. Last question to you. Uh, you mentioned the jihadists, or the jihadists. Um, are we going to see a further growth in the jihadist movement sub-Sahara? given that these main political issues aren't properly addressed, land use, land grabbing, etc. 
Oh, we have we have seen a uh, rapid growth uh, during the last uh, five years or so of of um, you know of the various armed groups that uh, are labeled jihadists in in the Sahel in in Mali in particular, but uh, the, they have spread to uh, to neighboring countries as well, and um, I think they will continue to grow as long as the root causes of uh, their uh, you know the, the why people are joining these organizations as long as the root causes are not addressed. And at, until now, uh, the government in Mali, uh, supported by international um, you know, uh, donors, international players, France, the US, have not wanted to uh, negotiate with the, these organizations. I think that's a major mistake. Uh, but now, actually, just during the last few uh, months, informal um, negotiations have started. So in Mali, they they changed the prime minister. So they had the prime minister who was who had a very aggressive uh, discourse towards the jihadists. Now they have a new prime minister who is um, less aggressive, and informally he has started negotiations with the jihadists. You know, it's th this is not. So my argument is that the jihadists. That there are some religious elements, of course, radical um, Islamists among, uh, especially in the leadership. But most of the people who join these groups are there for more reasons related to land and struggles over land and uh, a resistance to a corrupt state, which they have, are really fed up with. And uh, if I understand it correctly, Norway has an embassy in, in Mali. And yeah, Norway started an embassy in Mali, I think it was la uh, a year ago or so. Yeah. So is this a direct result of our allies being interested in sort of having a hand on this jihadist situation? And I know that military personnel has been down there, Niger, etc. France is involved. There are things going on. Is Norway also involved? Yeah, well, I, I don't know how much Norway is involved, but all, all uh, European Western countries would like, uh, you know, a, a piece of the cake, so to speak. So the Sahel has be, become very sexy in international politics during the last, uh, since, especially since 2012, when uh, Mali in particular fell apart for various reasons. Yeah, so it was the bombing of Libya that sort of um, um, pushed it over the edge, or who that that was a uh, what do you call it, utløsende uh, faktor, releasing factor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but um, but there are other factors as well. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we'll leave it at that. That might be a, a different seminar. Uh, <laughs> Patience. Uh, from your perspective, then you are going to continue studying urbanization within the Copper Belt and, and Southern Africa. Uh, yes, and I and I think that one of the one of the core areas that I think is understudied is the natural resource basis uh, for cities. You know what 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 are cities consuming, and what do cities need? Um, and I think for with the sort of growing urbanization rates. Um, for many African cities, I think this is an important question, particularly when it comes to considering uh, one of the sort of key things that the African Union would like to uh, achieve, and this is effectively sort of low carbon growth. 
um, in, in, in the area. And, and I think this is something that is of interest to many uh, African governments and cities, but the question is how? And, uh, and I think some of the how, for some of us who are anthropologists and into sort of micro studies, we think some of the how exists in what people are already doing and managing uh, scarce resources. But the key thing I, I would argue is, is sort of, is not to sort of maintain the status quo of sort of, you know, semi-impoverishment, but effectively it's then how the state and, and you know, comes steps in to effectively uh, scale up and organize that. To, to make it much more inclusive, um, s such that the basics are, are met. But I think the core thing is understanding, you know, what do cities need and what are they consuming? And, and then from there, we can, we can then sort of chart out a path to what uh, African urbanization might look like um, 50 years from now. Jolly good. Um, Henrik, when you uh, sit together with your colleagues at lunch later on today and they ask you what you did this morning, uh, why you came late into to work, and uh, you tell them that you had a conversation here together with other people, what would you tell them that you took from this conversation? What did you learn today? Uh, well, I, I'm, today I'm, I have the privilege of having lunch with the, uh, the new Irish uh, ambassador to Oslo. Even better. So I'll, I'll tell him about the importance because I, Ireland is competing for a seat on the uh, Security Council. So I'll tell him that, uh, that when Ireland is, uh, is entering, if there are, of course they're competing with Norway. Uh, so if they're entering uh, on the Security Council, uh, it's important to address uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, um, challenges that, uh, that pertain to, uh, to uh, uh, sort of drivers of, of armed conflict and the importance of, of appreciating and acknowledging uh, what the major drivers of conflict are and, and uh, uh, hopefully uh, being able to separate uh, between uh, challenges uh, in different domains and the, uh, and the uh, realities that, uh, that I think uh, science is informing us about. Lovely. Okay, people, keep following the African Council on their homepage. There are a lot of interesting things going on there, seminars and other type of information, and give a big hand to this very good <laughs> audio, um, yeah. panel.